There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. On Commons People this week, it's back to school. But when I asked you what was going to make you nervous, not a single one of you, so far anyway, mentioned coronavirus. Boris Johnson's had a summer to forget. The government just cannot make this stuff up now on the hoof as it goes along, saying one thing on on Monday, changing his mind on Tuesday. And can Keir Starmer ace this term? This has been a wasted summer. The government should have spent it preparing for the autumn and winter. Instead, they've lurched from crisis to crisis. Hello and welcome to Commons People. I'm Arj Singh and joining me this week is Paul War. Hi Arj. Hello Paul, welcome back after summer. Did you have a good one? Well, I've been quarantining for two weeks because I, I was caught up in the France debacle. So uh, it's great being out and breathing fresh air and you know, being able to go to the corner shop. It's so nice. You're now in the Commons as well, which is... I am, which is an yeah. unusual experience, yeah. but yeah. <laughs> uh, and also joining us, uh, delighted to be joined by the Labour MP and Shadow Education Minister, Emma Hardy. Hi there. Hi, Emma. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Just I'm looking forward to being back in the Commons next week because the joy that is working from home has now started to wear a little thin. So I'm looking forward to being back in Parliament. Yeah, I think I'll be back in next week as well to see how it's all going. Well, after a summer of chaos over education, children finally went back to school this week. It's too early to tell just how that's going and whether face mask guidance imposed after a U-turn is being followed. But it comes after a nightmare summer for Education Secretary Gavin Williamson, who is still facing questions over the exams fiasco that blighted A-level students. Many are also questioning why he is still in post while his department's permanent secretary, Jonathan Slater, and Ofqual chief regulator Sally Collier were forced out of their jobs. Ofqual has subsequently blamed Williamson for the exams fiasco. Let's hear the regulator's chair, Roger Taylor. So at the outset, our initial advice to the Secretary of State was that the best way to handle this was to try to hold exams in a socially distanced manner. That our second option was to delay exams, but the third option, if neither of these were acceptable, would be to have to try and look at some form of calculated grade. Uh, we did also look at whether that might be a teacher certificate rather than, a, than a, attempting to replicate exam grades. But that was our advice to ministers. It was the Secretary of State who then subsequently took the decision and announced, um, without further consultation with Ofqual, that exams were to be cancelled and a system of calculated uh, grades was to be implemented. Uh, Paul. How damaging has this whole saga been for the government and what does it mean for schools going back? I think it's been incredibly damaging, mainly because um, the government's main mission, Boris Johnson's main mission in the last election was this so-called levelling up across the country, which is supposed to be all about making sure, for example, in schools, that every school is treated equally, that every kid has got the same chance, the same crack at life, the same opportunities. Um, And this went right to the heart of that because 
it seemed that this mad algorithm looked like if you're a hardworking, bright kid in a working class area, just because your school hadn't done well in the past, you were going to not get the A-levels and therefore the, the future you wanted. Or even on BTECs, you know, it's not just about A-levels, it's about GCSEs, other qualifications. So it went right to the heart of what this government is supposed to be about, not just in the red wall areas, but just generally. And the reason I thought it was damaging, and you, you got a sense of this from the sheer anger amongst Tory MPs, um, who were ringing up, you know, Gavin Williamson, they were making damn sure this U-turn happened, and it did happen. So they, they escaped the worst, let's not forget. But the reason they were so angry is because it, it got right to the heart of what this government's supposed to be about. And because it affected so many people. Often when you talk about education stories, you know, as a parent myself, I'm sure Emma's got the same experience. You know, sometimes parents just focus on one bit of, of the school agenda that they're involved in. Uh, and if you've got a kid doing A-levels, you care. But if you haven't got a kid doing A-levels, who cares? Or GCSEs, or if you've got them at preschool, you know, it, 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 there's a, a sense of divide and rule when it comes to education where it can be little criticisms, but they don't really break through the, to the general public unless they're really big this was really big because it was about life chances and it reminded me of the last time the sort of public anger um was close to this or, or the public impact was 1992 with that day of interest rate rises when uh, you know black wednesday when the the tories you know were in deep deep trouble because and, and never recovered from that because it, it went right into the public psyche everyone or a large number of people were personally affected by one government bit of policy um and it, it lasted for a long time and i think i suspect that's what would have happened if they hadn't done a u-turn on this it would have been so damaging so they got away with it by the skin of the teeth whether or not the people i mean talking to parents parents are still furious about it the fact that it could have happened um and it's and, and across all classes as well because it just seems quite unfair as a system so i think um it certainly had a big, big impact and it's damage limitation now for the government as far as that's concerned yeah emma, emma is, is the government through the worst now on schools now that schools are back and and they've kind of you know belatedly sorted out what's happening in exams no, not really, because the U-turn has also created some problems as well. So although it was the least worst option, it's certainly not a perfect option. And there's still problems with students right now. I was talking to the Social Mobility Foundation just the day before yesterday, and they were explaining to me about particular students who are still missing out. For example, if you're a student who wants to go and do medicine, you're not allowed to resit your exams to get onto a medicine course. It's something that has always been that case. But if you've been given what you feel is the wrong centre assessed grade and you would like the chance to sit the exam and get a higher one, even if you get that higher mark, you're then disqualified from attending uh, and, you know, and learning how to be a doctor because you've resat. It counts as a reset. So it's still sort of disadvantaging uh, students, you know, as this continues. And I think the whole thing around BTECs were, I mean, they were clearly an afterthought. It clearly hadn't occurred to the government that there are thousands of students taking BTECs. And this, I think, is particularly damaging for Gavin Williamson because he famously, a few months ago, came out and said, oh, my ambition is further education, further education, further education. And then he forgot BTECs. I mean, that's personally incredibly embarrassing for him. And there's still, the chaos is still going on because although the Michelle Donnellan's piece uh, in the Telegraph was talking about 65% of students have got to their first choice university, but this has had a huge impact across the entire university system because there's this big movement at the moment towards civic universities, universities that are really firmly rooted 
in their towns and communities, supplying those graduate uh, jobs, serving the communities where they uh, where they exist, and a lot of these in you know red wall areas. And those universities are under huge risk because what they've seen happen is a huge number of students who maybe had them as a reserve choice, then trying to move into their first choice institution, and then in some cases being paid to defer for a year and all the nonsense uh, sort of that brings about, and that's having a real impact on their finances. So I think we're only in terms of higher education starting to see the fallout. And I think this could be very damaging for the government if they see universities who are huge employers and huge contributors to the local economy in those red wall areas having to go to the government because they face bankruptcy because of the utter chaos that the government created with their A-level um, A level exam results problem. So I think there is so many more problems still to come. And then there's the whole confusion about what's going to happen next year. Are they going to push the exam results back or not? Are they going to push the date back? And again, I find it so frustrating because, you know, as you know, I was a teacher and worked in education mm. and you can see the problems already. And the fact the government can't I, just infuriates me because already you can see the problem. If you push the exams back, which is a good idea, gives people more chance to catch up, then you have less time for marking it if you want UCAS system and the higher education system to work effectively. So if you have less time to market, you're going to need more people marking the exams. Therefore, you're going to have to train and recruit examination markers already to get them there in place to mark the exams in the time needed. And the other problem that they're not mentioning at all as well is the fact that we're talking about this learning loss time and students, um, particularly disadvantaged students, have missed out on learning time. But what about careers and advice learning time? That's gone as well. And by this, I mean, in your year 12 at, at school or college is when you start looking at your next options. You're looking either at apprenticeships or you're looking at jobs or you're looking at universities. You're visiting open days. You're learning about the different opportunities that are out there. You're just having these discussions with your tutors and your teachers and you're getting ready to think about putting in your UCAS form for your next step. Now, if you're looking at Oxbridge, those forms need to go in around October time. The rest, it's January. So it's it's there. It's on the horizon. It's right there. So if you're a student who has um, very good connections, this could have maybe continued during lockdown. If you're a student without those connections, who relies on the school and college to provide them for them, you've missed out completely on all of this time and all of these opportunities to look and investigate your next steps. And then not mentioning that as well. And I think this again talks like what Paul was talking about, this idea around levelling up. At every sort of step, education seems to be harming the most disadvantaged the most all the way through because they just don't seem to be able to see the picture in education. They don't seem to be able to see the problems that are coming down the road. And I, and I think it's just a lack of experience and understanding in, in how it all works. Yeah, as you mentioned there, Emma, you used to be a teacher. What, what have uh, you must be in touch with former colleagues and so on? What, what have they been saying over the last few weeks? And, and how do they think and how do you think the, the return to school this week is going? I think many of them are just pulling their hair out at the moment. I mean, there was genuine anger in the profession over the fact the government produced their guidance at 7 p.m. on a Friday night before a bank holiday weekend and how schools would return safely. I mean, that absolutely infuriated the profession. And again, the government seems to hold the profession sometimes in contempt 
I mean, there's really small things that the profession have asked them to do. Like if they're going to send out updated guidance, can they highlight it or do it in a different font so it's easy to identify the updates to the guidance they're sending out, rather than expecting uh, school leaders to read the entire documents again and try to identify the parts that have changed. I mean, just small things that show the contempt in which this government seems to hold teachers. And so they are furiously angry. They're also angry with some of the rhetoric that's been coming out from government, this idea that schools have been closed and now they're opening, which hasn't recognised the fact that schools were open throughout the Easter holidays for key workers. Some were even open in the bank holidays for key workers as well. They've been working and supplying uh, sometimes food as well as uh, learning resources for students. They're still waiting for these promised laptops. Schools, many schools have organised their own distribution system, have relied on charity donations. I did a system in my uh, in my local community of asking people to donate equipment for children. So all of this has been going on. And yet the, the noise that seems to come out from government is, again, this sort of bashing around teachers as somehow being lazy or reluctant because they're asking for safety measures to be in place before children return. And again, the, the group of children that this government seems to forget about every single time, and no one seems to mention, are all the parents of children with special education needs and disabilities. Who's talking about how it's going to be safe for those children to come back? They haven't sorted out the problems with school transport for how these children are going to get to and from school safely. They don't seem to be communicating with the special needs community and listening to their anxieties and fears. And and once again, I think it shows, I have to say, the contempt in which the government seemed to hold uh, much of the profession. And I think this has been, personally, I think this has been going on for years. And if you look at why we've been in the mess we're in, why part of the reason is we've got this system which is based on examination only, no coursework, no AS levels. And that, I think, is all goes down to when we had Michael Gove as Secretary of State for Education, and there was this belief that somehow if you continued with coursework, that teachers were you know, rigging the system and it was being done unfairly. So he created the monster, which has now created many of the problems for the government and Gavin Williamson right now. Can I can I, can I ask um, Emma, one of the big problems, as you've, you've pointed out, has been the, the loss classroom time for a lot of uh, deprived kids, kids from disadvantaged backgrounds. You know, they've lost lots of many months of schooling and yet... Yeah. Uh, they're in the middle of their GCSE courses uh, and their A-level courses, and they're due to take those exams next year. Now, one solution has been a lot of schools have quite rightly cut the the, the syllabus, the amount that they have to learn. Um, uh, and so that's helped a lot. But it doesn't. Is, and there's an attempt. The government keep telling us this one billion pound figure for catch up. We don't know quite sure how the catch up's working. But do you think that actually... If, as is likely, a lot of that catch up doesn't really materialise and if a lot of these kids have effectively still lost a lot of school time compared to, to more wealthy pupils, that maybe in the GCSEs and the A-levels, when they sit those exams and when those results come out, that there should be some kind of system to to help those kids in, in terms of their final grades, whether or not that could be taken into account. Should there be some sort of, I don't know what model you would use, but could there be a, a way of recognising the lost school time? It's a really it's a really difficult problem to sort of look at and address. And I suppose what we probably need to remember is often GCSE and A-levels are not an end in themselves, but a passport to move on to the next step of learning. I think that's really important because that sometimes gets lost. Not many people 
most of the time students who take the levels take the levels to open the door to higher education or you know a degree apprenticeship or some other form of learning so i suppose what maybe would be a different way to look at it is are the grades that children are going to get next year going to stop them or have an impact on them making the next step in their educational journey and i think if we look at it sort of maybe like that rather than you know I mean, that would be the way I'd like to look at it, but I'd really want to go away and actually study it and look at possibilities and look at sort of possible solutions to it. And what I think we should be saying is no matter what your background or where you come from, everyone should be supported in making the next step in their journey. That's the right one for them. You'll know by now there's an election coming up in America and you'll know by now the choices between the guy who brought you this, I don't know what you would call it, this this american carnage yeah american carnage and another gentleman of advanced years although a word to the wise donald don't call him old come on donald come on man how many push-ups you want to do here pal it's possibly the most important american election in our lifetimes and almost certainly the dumbest don't be rude running mate is a new podcast series from huffpost uk in it, we'll try to make sense of the US election for British people asking, what on earth is going on? Subscribe to Running Mate now to get your guide to November's vote. We'll have HuffPost reporters and commentators in the US explaining everything from the polls and Biden's fondness for fast cars. God, I'd love to drive this sucker. To the electoral college system and why Trump loves beautiful boaters. But the debacle over exams has not been the only issue blighting Boris Johnson over previous weeks. We've also had U-turns over local lockdowns, pay for self-isolators and housing evictions, to name just a few. Tory MPs are now privately scathing of the government's recent performance, while some have broken cover to urge the Prime Minister to get a grip. Let's listen to Charles Walker, the Vice Chair of the Tory 1922 Committee of Backbenchers, complaining about a disconnect between ministers and MPs. But the government just cannot make this stuff up now on the hoof as it goes along, saying one thing on, on Monday, changing its mind on Tuesday, something different presented on Wednesday. It's just not acceptable. And do you worry about the, how competent this looks to the outside? Does this look like a government in control to you? I mean, I, look, I, I, I worry about a, a lot of things. It's the nature of politics to worry about things. But fundamentally what I worry about is we have a huge number for the past six months of highly restrictive laws, some of them underpinned by very limited science. And even if they were underpinned by great science, they still deserve to be debated and decided upon. Uh, Paul, how bad are things for Johnson? Uh, are Tory MPs simply feeling the lockdown pressure or does this go deeper? Well, I think... As we've talked about before, it, there's quite a lot of grumbling about, amongst Tory backbenchers for a range of reasons. It's, you know, originally a lot of them were really irritated uh, and angry about the Dominic Cummings incident, um, that, that, particularly in the Red Wall. And that, that was, for many of them, it was a first taste of rebellion, uh, of going public and saying, actually, they're unhappy and they've got to speak up for the constituents because if they don't, they'll be toast at the next election. Um, so there's, that, there's a backdrop to that. So when you add on, on top of that, all these U-turns, uh, and the fact that if you're a Tory backbench and you go on the telly one day and say something defending the government, you may well look very, very stupid within five hours or 24 hours. That that all saps at morale. And uh, talking to MPs, Tory MPs this week, that certainly had an impact on them. Um, but I think the 
one thing that is really, really causing them concern is this whole idea of tax rises. And I think that that is, in a way, it goes to the heart of why you're a Tory MP. Um, you know, I mean, Emma, obviously, I would have a completely different worldview. But if you're a, if you're a Tory MP, the reason you become an MP in the first place is you've been motivated, amongst other things, by your belief that, that you know, the, the state should stay out of people's lives and that actually um, that's how you get most prosperity. No, they all deeply believe it. They may or may not be misguided in believing it, but they believe it. Um, and for them to have the idea that not only are you going to borrow many, many billions for many, many years, but on top of that, you're going to try and claw back some tax rises from ordinary people rather than the rich, richest in society, then I think for them, it's quite anathema. And I, I, that's, I think, the thing that it could be quite toxic for for Boris Johnson. How he handles that, how Rishi Sunak handles that is going to be really interesting. Everyone loves Rishi Sunak at the moment, don't they? Because, of, you know, eat out to help out. You know, restaurants love him. You know, his pictures everywhere. Um, members of the public, you know, had never heard of this guy before, but he's giving them, you know, a half price meal. Things are going to get much, much tougher on on for him within his own party on tax, but with the public, I think on furlough when that unfolds, and uh, he sees and he looks more like Scrooge than Father Christmas this autumn. So I think that's going to be quite interesting. Yeah, and we saw Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak both uh, going to address 2019 Tory MPs yesterday, didn't we? To try and reassure them, but actually give a clear signal that yes, there are going to be tax rises in the short term. Emma, are they? Right, we need to plug the gap in the finances, surely, that's been left by the furlough scheme and the other schemes and the massive recession that we've gone through or are going through. I think we've got to be looking at getting our economy growing again and, and to talk just locally about a specific drum I keep banging and that's talking about caravan manufacturing, for example. Now, caravan manufacturing might not mean a lot to you know the wider population, but here in Holland and Friday, it contributes to 20,000 well, jobs. Now we're doing staycations, it's uh, yeah, it's well, exactly. <laughs> right on. Everyone mm. loves their caravan. I've, I've had caravan holidays for years, they're great, but it does, it contributes to 20,000 jobs in our local area, and it's a perfect example of why you need specific furloughing support to continue for an industry. Because, as you've just pointed out, everyone's doing staycations, it's um, everyone's looking at their caravan holidays. I didn't even attempt to go abroad this year and I had a lovely holiday in Norfolk. It was I was really lucky with the weather. It was gorgeous. I'm already looking at booking another Haven one because who doesn't love Anxious the Elephant and Rory the Tiger? Um, <laughs> I've got nearly the whole collection of all the teddies from my children. They've, we've been going for years. But, um, you know, this is, this is an industry that just needs help to get round to summer next year because it sells most caravans during the um, tourist season as you can imagine and we haven't had much of that because of the lockdown so it's one of those examples where a little bit of extra targeted support could make a huge difference because the alternative is come the end of October lots of the people who work in this area are going to be laid off they're going to be made redundant which is going to be horrific for them but really horrific for areas like coal which have already been identified as an area at risk from the Covid economic impact and if you look at reducing jobs even further in these particular areas, it's going to take even longer for us to recover. I'm hoping, I'm really hoping the next U-turn is going to be a U-turn around this furloughing scheme, because I think we need things like this to keep our economy going. And going back to, I know we've moved on from education, but I'll never move on from education. You know, I've spent too much of my life <laughs> in education to ever move on from it. 
But in, in that example as well, you've got, I know further education colleges are making redundancies. I know universities are making redundancies as well. And the thing I want to point on to stress about universities and why redundancies there matter particularly is not only sort of the institutional learning loss and the impact that will have on how um, attractive we look to international students in the future, but also in many towns and communities, it's one of the few graduate employers that are actually there. And if you look at sort of opportunities for young people, if you're a graduate and you're looking at the area like Hull, Hull University is a graduate employer. And, and it's sometimes difficult to identify some of those big businesses that are also graduate employers in this area. So I think the government need to have, again, which is something they seem to always fail to do, a bit of a joined up approach to look at how there's not much point giving with one hand if in other areas you're taking with another. And if they're going to really be serious about supporting the economy, then they can't be looking at cutting, for example, the you know education funding to universities or cutting education funding to further education or cutting the furlough scheme when it's going to have a disproportionate impact in regions like mine. If then they're going to try and you know give us a half price meal at the end of it, because that really, you know, I'd rather have a job than a 50 percent off my dinner. Paul, I just wanted to ask you about um, Boris Johnson in particular. Um, there were reports yesterday that he was being asked by Tory backbenchers at the 1922 whether he was a prisoner of number 10. And also there, were, there was an interesting uh, whispers a couple of weeks ago saying that he was suffering from long COVID and may step down, which was uh, fiercely denied by number 10. But you've got to wonder whether he really fancies this well uh, certainly not what he signed up for is it um covid <laughs> um running the country during this pandemic is, has been obviously quite a challenge for him um and on on a personal level obviously he's tried to cope with that that virus having been felled by the virus and going to hospital that, that there's no question that um it, it seems as though almost on a weekly basis he seems to forget a few things and in the commons this week in pmqs he he, he simply seemed to forget that Keir Starmer had indeed said in June that um, schools were safe to go back to. I mean, he said it on the record and Hansard will record it. So it's quite strange that the Prime Minister seems to have forgotten that and declared the opposite. So I, I do know that there are some people around him who say that he's, he's been in the odd meeting or so, something where they've mentioned something and, they've, and they it was something they'd mentioned a few days earlier and he's completely forgotten it. So you just wonder whether or not there is something going on. I've got no evidence evidence for it but certainly that that's talk of the tea room put it that way um it, it's it's going to be interesting because you need someone at full strength obviously when you're when you've, you're dealing with this massive crisis yeah that's really interesting um emma just quickly um the government's next big drive although they deny it's a big drive is getting people back to the office what do you make of how they're going about that I thought it was, you know, I thought it was genuinely quite upsetting the way they were almost threatening people with redundancy if they weren't going back to the office. I think that frightened people. And people right now in the national mood is people are worried and they are anxious and they're concerned. And I think frightening them into saying, well, if you don't, you'll lose your job, I think is completely and utterly the wrong way to govern whatsoever. And, and, and just to make a point on what Paul said about the prime minister possibly forgetting, um, I mean, that. I mean, it's a kind way to look at it. I wonder sometimes if he just has, you know, what, as a teacher, I found many children had, which is that selective memory loss, where they just like <laughs> to not recall the things that you've said that they don't really want to remember. So maybe there was a little bit of selective memory loss happening during uh, Prime Minister's questions, which was thoroughly enjoyable 
uh, this week. Um, but yeah, I think shouldn't be looking at frightening people. They should be understanding the national mood, understanding why people are nervous about going back. And also, it's like, it's this whole confusion over the message. It's like, right, we want you to go back to work, but not using public transport because we want you to distance on public transport. So go back to work. But obviously there's also climate change problems. So don't use your car either, but still go back to work. I mean, it's just, you know, there's no strategy. There's no joined up idea. It's utterly bonkers. It's confusing people. And they're not recognizing the fact that people are frightened. And just to squeeze in education once more, um, the other point that they've not worked out as well is that lots of childminders are actually operating at the moment and that wraparound childcare that parents need to go back to work isn't available. And speaking personally, my, um, my childminder is worried about having lots of different children in her house from different families. So she's choosing to do online tutoring and, and sort of pursue that rather than sort of open up as a childminder again. And I know from speaking to friends, this is all over the country. I mean, this isn't just an issue that's specific here. And lots of people are then quite limited about when they can actually physically go back to work because of the not having that wraparound childcare. But I think the governments need to just understand a bit more about what the lived reality is of so many people, recognise their fears and concerns and seek to reassure them. I mean, goodness, I mean, just seek to, you know, be a compassionate leader. You know, we just that would be a start. That would be that'd be a small hope. Just show some compassion and some understanding and a little bit of leadership. Um, well, as the Tories slip further into despair, Keir Starmer appears to be ahead of schedule in masterminding Labour's comeback. One poll for the Observer last week put Labour on level pegging with the Tories, having clawed back a 26-point gap since the pandemic took hold in March. Starmer also regularly outperforms Johnson on personal ratings, and on Wednesday he took the PM to task at PMQs. Let's hear the pair clashing. Even his own MPs have run out of patience. The vice chair of the 22 committee, the MP for Broxbourne, has said the government says one thing on Monday, changes its mind on Tuesday, something different is presented on Wednesday. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? Another is MPs, who wisely wants to remain anonymous, perhaps in the chamber today. He or she said, I am speaking for you because this is what was said, it's mess after mess, his own MPs, U-turn after U-turn. It's a fundamental issue of competence. God knows what's going on. There's no grip. His own MPs are right, aren't they? This is a leader of the opposition who backed uh, remaining in the EU and now is totally silent on the sun, now has performed the U-turn. He backed, he backed and still, and perhaps he still does, Mr Speaker. Uh, this is a, a, a leader of the opposition who supported an IRA condoning uh, politician who wanted to get out of NATO and now says absolutely nothing. This is a, a, a leader of the opposition who sat on the front bench oh, 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 uh, whilst oh, oh, there was anti-Semitism. I think there are questions being asked. We do need to try and answer the questions being put to the Prime Minister. It will be helpful to those who are watching to know the answers. Prime Minister. Mr Speaker, I think it will be helpful to, to all those who are watching to know. Minister, I think I'll make the decisions today. Come on, Prime Minister. Um, Paul, Starmer was probably his most combative since becoming Labour leader. Uh, at, at this week's PMQs, are we beginning to see a shift in his approach? I think what you got the overwhelming sense from this week's PMQs is how Keir Starmer is just a bit sick of what Boris Johnson does at PMQs. He's just had enough of it uh, and he won't put up with it anymore. It's quite interesting, you know, the evasions, the the attacks on him, uh, the ad hominem attacks on him, the personal stuff. Um, and he genuinely was looked angry um, that IRA reference. Um, 
and it was quite interesting. He seemed to be seething for the rest of PMQs over that. And I think that's quite, you might, in a way, it's quite a good thing. You get, for Keir, who's often seen as a bit of a robot, a desiccated calculating machine, you know, the lawyer. Um, for him to show a bit of emotion, I think, was quite good. Um, but obviously, he did it in a very Keir-like way. He channeled the emotion. You know, you, you don't get mad, you get even. And that's clear. He had that sort of cold anger, which I think in, in politics is the best thing, rather than the hot anger. Um, and he directed into his, his question questions and he became more barbed and sharp and i thought that was quite interesting uh, having said that uh, yeah labor is neck and neck on 40 percent. but let's not forget the tories are still on 40 percent. so you know that's it's not as if labor are miles ahead in the middle of a pandemic that's that's cost tens of thousands of people's lives um and despite the backdrop of incompetence the, the tories are still at 40 percent and you have to say, well, obviously, it's a start for Keir Starmer and no one's expecting dramatic changes overnight. Um, he's got a long way to go. Uh, but that, that, that Tory brand is quite resilient and it, it's worth just sometimes taking a reality check on all, all the the hype about, oh, well, isn't it amazing things? Uh, Labour's doing really, really well. Um, I think that I did a story this week about the 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 virtual the zoom call plp that took place on on tuesday between keir starmer and 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 these mps and um, emma was probably part of it and kevin brennan who's really one of the best hecklers in pmqs and the best best backbenchers really sharp wit said congratulations keir for getting us from the carousel at Kathmandu airport to base camp at everest in good shape for the long climb ahead and that, that was quite funny because it it pointed out just how, yeah, this image of Jeremy Corbyn being some sort of baggage handler. Um, but at the same time, you know, it, it, it was serious because he says, look, you know, it is still a really long, hard road ahead. You should not underestimate how difficult it is. Yeah. Emma, what do you make of that? Um, Starmer has, has got to this point so far by by holding the government to account, criticising the government, but not doing a lot else. As a shadow minister, you must be keen to get some policies out there now and maybe that's what will take you over the next stage and take you into the lead in those polls. Yeah I mean I'm you know I'm personally a huge fan of Keir as you know I was his PPS um, under Jeremy Corbyn so I know him personally and he is you know I, I think he is great and I think the contrast in their personalities was so apparent uh, in PMQs yesterday when you had Keir who is whether people like him or not like him, he's phenomenally intelligent. He's incredibly, you know, his attention to detail is absolutely incredible. But he also has this absolute sort of stick of rock idea of justice and fairness, which seems to direct much of what he has said and done. And I've, I've often heard him say, say to me, Emma, but, you know, is it the right thing to do? You know, this, this narrative of this is the right thing to do. And so I think yesterday when... I think you're quite right, Paul, in identifying that uh, Boris's behaviour and almost sort of disregard for Parliament, disregard for the impact his policies have, you know, throwing insults off like a petulant child. I think how that contrasts with, you know, Keir's, Keir's leadership and Keir's statesmanship and, and Keir's belief in always trying to do the right thing, uh, I think was utterly apparent and I think yesterday's PMQ is probably no greater example of the different personalities that, that people have to choose from. I think you're ob obviously right about you know the the steep climb that Labour have to have to go and I think it's great that we've made so much progress but we, we have to keep showing our our relevance and our importance and Keir's absolutely right about listening to people and listening to their everyday concerns. But I also just want to mention again what doesn't often get mentioned is Labour councils as well. During this pandemic, Labour and councils have been doing an incredible job 
same with the mayors. Look at the work Andy Burnham's been doing in sort of talking about the Labour Party. So this has been a real group effort, the councils, Keir, Andy Burnham, all, you know, working together and sort of showing the importance that Labour can make and the difference that Labour can make to people's everyday lives. And I think, but I mean, I think Kevin Brennan's great. I absolutely um, think he's hilarious. I used to love sitting up at the back of him during meetings. <laughs> He'd have me laughing my head off, and I once did a heckle on um, on Theresa May, uh, which was unattributed to myself. And and at the end of it, Kevin was like, "You've now you you can now grace us with your presence. You can now sit on, the, <laughs> on the heckle bench." But yeah, I mean, it's you know we're, we're certainly not home and dry, and I think it would be wrong of us to even think that we have. But I, I sense myself when I've been going out and about in Holwest and Hesel. There's a what I would call people are warming back towards us. That anger seems to be disappearing and seems to be moving away. And I had a message from someone who was quite angry during the general election. And had told me so in no uncertain terms, sent me a message only a couple of weeks ago saying he was sorry for, um, uh, for what he'd said to me in the general election, but he was really angry about Brexit. He was very angry about um, Jeremy at the time. Um, but he'd certainly be looking at what I was saying ahead of the next one. And I thought, well, that's all we can ask for at the moment, isn't it? That people who were really close to us are now looking at us again with fresh eyes and saying, right, what are you offering me now? And I, and I think that's what we should be looking for at the moment. And we're only just sort of, you know, a few months away from, you know, really heavy general election defeat. But I'm hoping that everyone will see what I see and that here is a decent man and we need more decent men in politics. Because uh, I, I was I, I was told actually by somebody only today in in the Commons who, who I bumped into said that um, um, I've just talked about Keir's anger in PMQs. Actually, afterwards the PM was furious um, uh, and started almost when he went back to the stand, slamming doors, kicking kicking the the desk, and basically blaming everyone but himself for that because he knew it was a disastrous performance. And I think that's quite interesting. Um, it's a sort of touch of the Gordon Browns, you might say. You know, he didn't quite chuck a phone across the room, but um, he was furious apparently and started saying, why wasn't I better briefed on this and this and this? And I think that's quite interesting. But one thing that he was, he was lucky and unlucky yesterday. Um, he was lucky that the uh, the U-turn, um, the extra U-turn that was announced by Matt Hancock was middle of PMQs and no one was smart enough to actually pass it through the whips to a Labour backbencher to raise it in PMQs. That, he could have really been skewered even further in PMQs if that had happened. Um, but um, he was unlucky in the sense that the, the BBC U-turn on the proms uh, came after PMQs because I, I suspect if that had been before PMQs, he would have really been on on stronger ground and he would have tried to pin Keir Starmer down again on a sort of culture war issue but I thought mm. what was interesting actually Emma was after that we we talked to Keir's spokesman as we do after every PMQs and he was pretty hard line about um proms and he said that Keir not only does Keir watch it the last night of the proms but actually he thought the BBC had made the right decision in U-turning and in ditching this plan not to sing Rule Britannia um do you think Keir's sort of with your constituents, is, is he in touch with that kind of um, sort of culture issue with you? Um, he came up to Hull, did Keir, uh, before the general election, actually before the general election was announced, because I was telling him a lot. I talk a lot about Hull and I talk a lot about education. I think mean, you probably picked up on that by now. Um, and I obviously told him a lot about Hull. And, and so he 
Promovia promised that he'd come up and he did and he came and he spoke to people in a community centre, he spoke to um, all different people from the community and afterwards he said he's repeated a few times not just to me but to other people how informative he found that and how useful he found actually coming up to Hull so he knows that there's you know obviously an open invite for him to return again. So I do I mean it was interesting when he was talking to people and he was relating relating to them and, and the people he was spoken to spoke to and not all of them you know I hadn't handpicked everybody there who was a Labour Party supporter I genuinely asked people from the community so there was a mix of people who felt um different ways and this was around uh, Brexit really at the time so there was lots of people who were leavers in the in those meetings and and he was able to relate and he was able to listen to them and talk about the things that matter to them because I mean fundamentally what matters to people you know you know health family security I mean these are the things where the Labour Party traditionally does very well and they are the things that matter more than ever I mean health at the moment I think is everyone's you know it's come at the forefront of everybody's mind and their jobs and that security and I think where Labour Party are talking about these issues we're showing a real relevance to people's lives um, do you find all that kind of, you know, you're describing whether or not it's true, of course, um, Boris Johnson having a strop when he got back from Prime Minister's questions, I just find it so utterly childish. And this is what I find quite frustrating about this level of, of leadership in that, you know, we have a Prime Minister who will once again blame other people for the mistakes that he's made rather than owning them and saying, you know, as I've done, as we've all done sometimes, I got that wrong. It didn't go very well. That's my fault. I'll try and do better next time. But they're always making it sometimes someone else's fault. And I, I find that quite distasteful. Yeah, fair enough. Right. Well, we must move on. We've just about got time for the quiz. And in oh. honour of... The... <laughs> Don't all jump at once. In honour of the news that Tony Abbott is about to be appointed to a UK government role to help drum up post-Brexit trade deals, this week's is all about the former Aussie PM. So uh, it's just Paul facing off against Emma this week because Rachel is away. So uh, just shout the answer if you know it, basically. That's I won't know any of them. You Quizzes are dreadful. Okay, go on. <laughs> okay, question number one. What raw vegetable did Tony Abbott infamously bite into while visiting a farm in Tasmania in 2015? God, was it an onion? Yes, well done, Paul. It was, raw... <laughs> it was a raw onion with the skin on. At the time, he said... Better than any other onions I've eaten in a long time. And later asked to explain it, he said he was trying to show his appreciation to a hardworking farmer. Have you ever bitten into a raw onion with the skin on, either of you? No, it sounds like, one of the, again, one of those things that you'd, a boy would do at school to impress, isn't it? It's that sort of pathetic, look, I could do this and I'm really hard, you know. And all uh, the girls like it when I bite my onion. Yeah. <laughs> they probably don't like it as breath after this, but anyway. Uh, no, no, this, it's like a backfired sort of attempt at showing his masculinity of bite into an onion. Uh, he has a standoff if someone else grabs a radish will look at me. <laughs> uh, question number two. As Australian PM, Abbott was criticised by his own sister. Why? God. No, no idea. Was it the misogyny speech from Julia Gillard? I don't know. No. Well, I wouldn't like to guess, but I assume his general misogynistic approach to things. It's It's the other... Ism. Oh, um, is she LGBT? Yes. Oh, right. yes. Gay. 
Chris, Christine Forster, who's Tony Abbott's sister, is a lesbian and criticised Abbott over his attempts to frustrate the legalisation of gay marriage. Right. Are they not I close, then? I, <laughs> I, I, I have no idea how close they are, but she wasn't very happy about that, uh, understandably. Marry me. Um, yeah. uh, final one. Which world leader did Abbott controversially promise to, quote, shirt front over the Malaysia Airlines flight MH17? A, sh a shirt front is apparently an Aussie rules term for charging into the chest of an opponent and knocking them to the ground. Oh, it's um, got to be Putin, hasn't it? Yes, correct, Paul. Well done. My uh, goodness. I, did, I didn't know that. I was just guessing. Yeah, congratulations, <laughs> Paul. You've won the quiz. Uh, you see, it should have been on. It should have been on schools and GCSEs. Then Emma would have <laughs> smashed it. We should have done GCSE or A level questions, like actual exams. You, know, you could have done, you know, education bodies abolished by the coalition government in 2010. <laughs> yeah, very good. It. Maybe, it. maybe next time you're on, Emma. Uh, yeah, my specialist subject. I think key object is introduced by the uh, Labour government. And, uh, I, yeah, it's terrible. <laughs> No uh, useless knowledge I have. <laughs> uh, right. Well, unfortunately, that's all we have time for this week. Thank you to my guests for joining me. And make sure you subscribe to Commons People on all the usual channels and be sure to leave a review. Please also check out Running Mate, our fantastic podcast on the US elections, which is aimed at Brits and has a bigger budget than this podcast. And get your daily <laughs> dose of what's happening in Westminster by subscribing to the legendary Warzone newsletter at bit.ly forward slash the hyphen war hyphen zone. We'll just leave you with Jacob Rees-Mogg surprising us all by showing he knows how to play music from his phone. Mr. Speaker, I wonder... Values of this house has just broke about dare. Mr. Speaker, I of course apologise for anything. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.